Welcome, everybody. I am at the Stade de Genève, the home stadium of Geneva Servette Football Club, WTO's local football team. I am here to talk to FC Servette's director of football, Philippe Senderos. Philippe enjoyed a stellar career in club football, playing in the English Premier League and the Italian, Scottish, Spanish, Swiss and the U.S. top leagues. He also played at international level with the Swiss national team. Philippe was also at the center of one of the most iconic moments of Swiss football which took place in the 2006 FIFA World Cup. Switzerland desperately needed to win a match against Korea in order to move to the second round. And then Switzerland gets a free kick, and then Philippe did what all fans in the world want their players to do. He really went for it, clashed with the defense, and scored. Then he turns around with all his head covered in blood and then starts to celebrate pointing to the sky, right? And the iconic part here is that it looked like he didn't even know he was bleeding. Uh, what happened to the Korean guy? I don't know. I think he was uh, worse off than me <laughs> because I scored. So, um, yeah, I didn't feel the pain or anything. For me, the, the joy of, of scoring in front of uh, our fans and, uh, and scoring that uh, all-important goal was, uh, was more than the, the pain that uh, the, the other player received. Really nice to meet you. So let's get right into business. How much Servette does spend on footballs every year? I wouldn't know uh, exactly. We have a sponsor that provides the, the balls for the league and, uh, and they provide the, the footballs for, uh, for every single team. Oh, so you don't spend anything? It's free balls? Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's free balls because we have an academy as well. Uh, uh, but I wouldn't know the, the exact number. We have 30 balls uh, at every single training session. Then if we lose one or two, we get replaced. And every six months, we probably change. Thank God I'm not in charge of the balls. I don't know much about them. <laughs> what would you say if I told you that if you add up all the expenditure of inflatable balls globally, you reach a figure of over $1 billion? That's a massive amount. Um, that shows how global this sport is, that so many people play football. And, uh, and obviously the chain of work from what the football uh, means for everyone and where it comes from is, is huge. Manufacturing, distributing, and selling footballs is a surprisingly complex and international business. It's a value chain that extends globally. And for us here at the WTO, talking about global trade is almost as exciting as meeting Philippe Senderos. So, let's talk trade. Welcome to Trade Goals, a podcast by the World Trade Organization about, yes, trade and football, where we will explore the value chain of the beautiful game. My name is Roy Santana, and I am the secretary of the WTO Council for Trading Goods. In this episode, we will inflate your trade knowledge about footballs, dribble around some interesting trade topics, and tackle football-related questions you never knew you had. Let's begin by discussing how and why most high-end footballs are manufactured in Sialkot, Pakistan, the street sounds that you are hearing in the background. To get the answer, let me pass the ball to Michael Roberts, football buff in the development division at the WTO. Thanks, Roy. Sialkot is an industrial powerhouse. It's an ancient city situated in northeast Pakistan. I spoke to Kasim Malik, vice president of Sialkot's Chamber of Commerce, and Dr. Newman Butt. He's the CEO of Capital Sports, a major football exporter. 
I asked Kazim Malik just how important are footballs to the exports of Sialkot. We apologise for the poor audio quality. Football has always been a very iconic primary source. It also increases the uh, number of uh, customers uh, in the uniform, football uniform, football accessories and other sporting goods also. It encourages the mindset of our buyers that if Salcourt could manufacture football for FIFA, then they could manufacture for other sporting goods also, uh, other sectors, uh, not specifically sports, but they could also benefit because the main thing is if uh, people know out there that footballs are made in Sialkot, then obviously other segments also show interest. So it absolutely has done wonderful and football industry is definitely a pride of Pakistan. To get an idea of how the football industry in Sialkot has changed over the years, I spoke to Dr. Newman Butt, the CEO of Capital Sports. Manufacturing of football has changed uh, quite a lot in the last few years. When I started, there were only two kinds of technologies. One was overwhelmingly dominating, that was hand-stitch ball industry, and there was laminated ball. At the moment, there are like maybe five to ten kinds of technologies, old-fashioned laminated balls, and there are newly fancy kind of laminated balls also, which have been introduced. Uh, by different brands, and then uh, hand stitch is still staying, then machine stint, then thermo bonded, then tritex. So there are all kinds of balls which are in the market at the moment. I guess also the the competition landscape has changed significantly in the 25 years that you've been manufacturing footballs and the 50 years of your company as well. Would it be right to say that there are a lot more competitors from other countries? Industry keeps on moving. Pakistan was uh, making more than 85% of the world fall uh, for many years. Then machine stitch came and then China and uh, later Vietnam also joined the game. All the Far Eastern countries and uh, Latin American countries. So the scenario has changed. Sialkot is still a major player, but not the only player. And just how closely do you have to work with the global brands that um, supply the footballs to the final consumer, whether they be football clubs, whether they be individual consumers? We work very closely with brands. We are like an OEM, original equipment manufacturers for them. Markets are being controlled by them and they work with their own distribution networks and we manufacture for them. Am I correct in saying that exports of footballs typically grow in a World Cup year? Well, it's the ball business and it's up and down. Planning is being completed about 18 months before the major tournament. And uh, the production uh, starts around that time. And uh, eight or nine months before the World Cup, the balls are being launched in the market. Brands work through their networks and they get ordered from their distributors, their sales shops, and whatever selling channels they have. So they get a forecast and place orders. So when the ball is being launched, there's, uh, everybody gets uh, excited about it, and their sales increase, and then there are replenishment orders. And this continues for a few months after the World Cup, and then it kind of gets down. Thanks, Michael. What are the facts and figures for trading footballs? 
The first thing to highlight is that countries around the world try to use the same methodology to measure trade statistics. For this, they use a special system called the Harmonized System, or HS, which is administered by our colleagues from the World Customs Organization in Brussels. These HS codes group specific commodities and are used by customs officials and traders around the world. But did you know that we cannot measure trading football specifically? This is because footballs are grouped together with all other inflatable balls in the same category. In other words, international trade statistics catch all balls, including basketballs, beach balls, volleyballs, rugby balls, and even American footballs, under the same customs tariff line. For the trade nerds out there, that's HS subheading 950662. In 2018, when the World Cup was held in Russia, the value of inflatable balls traded globally reached more than $1 billion. However, in 2021, global trade in inflatable balls had fallen to $864 million, which is probably explained by COVID-19 deflating demand. China is now the largest supplier of inflatable balls in general, with exports reaching more than $543 million US dollars in 2021. Thanks, everyone. That's really interesting. But can we put this in a trade policy context, please? In other words, how do government actions affect trade in footballs? That's Claudia, our series producer, big fan of the Bundesliga. Sure, Claudia. Like any other product, actions by governments can have a profound impact on whether footballs can be easily traded across countries. Here is a team sheet of some of the classic trade policy measures that play a role in determining these conditions and influence the tactics of exporters and importers of footballs. The first one is tariffs, which are the tax typically paid by the importer when the balls are brought from another country. High tariffs imply a higher cost, which is normally transferred to consumers. The second one are the rules of origin, which are the rules to determine where balls originate, or so to speak, their nationality. This may have an impact on the tariffs that have to be paid and other requirements. For example, while countries typically have a tariff that they levy on imports from any WTO member, which we call the MFN duty, and MFN here stands for most favored nation, that tariff could be lower if the footballs originate in a country that has a free trade agreement, or if the importing country grants non-reciprocal preferences to the country of origin of the footballs. Thirdly, the importation of footballs might be affected by trade defense measures, such as anti-dumping duties, countervailing duties, or safeguard measures. They allow the importing country to counter unfair trade practices and temporarily protect their local industries. Fourthly, the general customs procedures that have to be followed for the import, export, and transit of the footballs may also have a profound impact on both the time and cost it takes to move them from one country to another. The more difficult and slow this is, the higher the cost and price that consumers have to pay at the end. This is why the WTO adopted a few years ago a new trade facilitation agreement, which seeks to cut red tape and simplify these procedures. I ask intrepid football buff Michael Roberts to run this team sheet by some people involved in trade in sporting goods. So I'm here with Robert DeCock, who is the president and CEO of the World Federation of Sporting Goods Industries, or the WFSGI. Robert. From Roy's team list of trade policy measures, can I ask you which ones block your members from achieving their trade goals? If you take footballs in particular, I would say uh, the rules of origin are probably the one that you could, uh, could see as the challenging part uh, in it. Where we encounter, I would say, increasing number of cases where products are held around the borders uh, because of that. 
Could you elaborate maybe a little bit further about why rules of origin in the area of trade in footballs is the main issue that you cite? The industry is very global. We have production facilities which are maybe very localized. I mean, if you take Pakistan, India, China, there's a few others who produce footballs, Thailand probably. But where's the raw material coming from? And where's the design made of the ball? Raw materials may come from other countries, but it may come from China. It may come from from South America. Uh, uh, We have raw materials coming from Europe. Then you have the design. I mean, those balls are designed uh, in the USA and in Germany, where several of those uh, experts are are located and several of those brands are located. So um, then you come back to what's the rule of origin? I mean, where is it made? As you heard, WTO agreements do have an impact on how many footballs are traded internationally every year. So let me finish this episode with some thoughts about the role of the World Trade Organization as the guardian of international trade in football. Roy, you stepped offside, Roy. Wait, what? No, you cannot be serious. Una, defend me. You've only focused on the market access issues. That's only half the story when it comes to moving goods across borders. That's Una Flanagan, a colleague at the WTO Secretariat. Our countries, Ireland and Costa Rica, met in a friendly match in 2014. It ended in a one-to-one draw. But you're not so friendly today, Una. You're lucky it wasn't Gaelic football, Roy. For your info, Gaelic football also uses an inflatable ball. It looks like a regular association football, but it's a little smaller, heavier, and has different performance characteristics. If you come to play with us in Dublin, we'll make you play with that ball. Did you know that something similar happened at the first ever World Cup in 1930? There were no international standards on footballs at the time. The tournament wall was made in Uruguay. They were the host of the first World Cup. All the games used that ball, but when they got to the final, there was a big dispute between the finalists. What was their beef? Oh my goodness. Fortunately, the dispute was only about football and not beef and asados. Let's speak to Señor Gerardo Cal. He works at the Football Museum in Montevideo. Hola, Gerardo. Can you explain to us what happened at the 1930 World Cup final with the ball? I explained to you. The two balls in the first final match in the World Cup history, 1930, had different designs. The Argentinian ball was built in shape of T. Uruguayan ball was made of segments. Mm. For that, the referee entered the field with two balls under the arms, Argentinian ball and Uruguayan ball. And the referee flipped a coin in the air and they looked aside. The first time, Argentinian ball. The second time, Uruguayan ball. Here, Gerardo is using the Spanish word for first half and second half of the match. Primer tiempo, segundo tiempo. But these balls were different just in terms of the shape or one was heavier, bigger? No, no, different, different, different designs. In the game, Uruguay won four by two. The first time, Argentina win two by one. And the second time, Uruguay make three goals and win four by two. What about the Argentinian and the Uruguayan ball? You have them in display at the museum. No, 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 no. No Uruguayan ball and no Argentinian ball. The two balls disappeared. Oh, no, what happened? The referee finished the match. He take the two balls and go. See, he was afraid. <laughs> he was afraid for the security. <laughs> you can find photos of the two different balls in the show notes. 
So effectively, what Gerardo has explained is that when there are no agreed international standards, disputes can arise. And like at the 1930 World Cup final, this means a lot of time lost trying to find ad hoc solutions that hold a play and lead to on-field and off-field disputes. These types of problems then not only hold a play on the pitch, they can keep goods waiting to cross borders or stop them moving altogether. Finding solutions to trade problems is one of the tasks of the WTO's Technical Barriers to Trade Agreement and the work of the committee that services this agreement. This is the body at the WTO that I work for. Its rules promote the use of international standards to prevent these types of frictions arising. The TBT agreement seeks to balance the achievement of legitimate policy objectives with the need to ensure that the measures don't arbitrarily restrict trade. So, in other words, governments are allowed to regulate the products as they see fit, but they shouldn't show a red card to a market player without good reason or favour one team or player over another. And as Una knows, transparency is a core principle of the WTO. Notification and publication provisions are found in a wide range of WTO agreements. The TVT agreement is no exception. Michael talked to a WTO member that has notified trade measures on footballs. I'm called George Opio. I work for Uganda National Bureau of Standards. And Uganda National Bureau of Standards is responsible for development and enforcement of Uganda standards. So, George, how did the Uganda National Bureau of Standards get involved in the area of, of footballs? Um, back in September 2021, the Bureau notified it was introducing new requirements on sampling and test methods for outdoor footballs. And these included footballs destined for use in under 10 football competitions. Could you give us a little bit of background about the measure and explain why it was notified to the WTO? The... Footballs that are used in Uganda are all imported into the country, but uh, there is also some private sector stakeholders who would like to uh, begin manufacturing footballs in Uganda. So when this need for the standards for football was brought to the attention of the Uganda National Bureau of Standards, it was realized that uh, we did enough a standard for football there were also some complaints from the government agency that is in charge of regulating footballs. Most of the footballs that are imported into the country are substandards, and therefore there was need to come out uh, with a standards that uh, the regulator could then use to regulating the quality of football in Uganda. And uh, because these standards once adopted and it is in, converted into law through a legal notice that will be signed by our minister in charge of trade industry and cooperatives will be used for regulating both imported and locally produced uh, footballs. So the notification makes reference to international standards. Um, could you explain the role that international standards play in helping global trade? Because most uh, of the football that are being imported in Uganda, it is uh, important for us to try as much as possible to harmonize the national standard that uh, Uganda is developing to relevant international standards so that uh, the standard for football will not become a barrier to trade between Uganda and the RWTO members that will be exporting football to Uganda. That's a public sector perspective on standards and international trade. I suggest we now get a private sector perspective from Adidas, a company with a long association with footballs. 
Unfortunately for Oliver Hundacker, a senior director of Adidas, it was my colleague Michael Roberts, with his long footballing memory, who asked the questions. My name is Oliver Hundacker, and I'm senior director of product operations at Adidas Football in Herzogenaurach, Germany. In my role, I'm responsible for leading the product development team for football footwear and hardware. Fantastic, Oliver. I've waited a long time for this. In fact, 12 years, to be precise. Can I take you back to the 37th minute of the 2010 World Cup in South Africa? The match is England versus Germany. It's the last 16. The score is 2-1 to Germany. The ball wobbles up in Germany's penalty area. Frank Lampard shoots. The shoot beats Manuel Neuer. The ball hits the bar and comes down. Lampard turns to celebrate. The TV ray plays show it crosses the line. But the referee doesn't give the goal. The scoreline stays 2-1 to Germany. Why? Well, it isn't the first ghost goal in the long history of football. The Germans still remember Hurst's overtime goal during the <laughs> final of the World Cup 1966, the famous <laughs> Wembley goal. Meanwhile, we have witnessed the advent of goal line technology and high-speed camera systems supporting referees. Nowadays, video assistant referees review decisions made by referee in the video operation room. Our ambition with the official match ball of the FIFA World Cup 2022 is to provide a high level of data and information to video match officials for making faster and more accurate decisions. An ultra lightweight sensor is positioned in the center of the ball. The connected ball technology will enable the most accurate measurement of every touch of the game to an exact time point with a precision of two milliseconds, believe it or not. Can you explain how uh, footballs are tested for safety, performance and quality and how the balls themselves have changed? When we launched Al Rahla, the official match ball for the World Cup in Qatar, it has been the 14th successive World Cup ball Adidas created. Since Adidas launched the Telstar at the 1970s World Cup held in Mexico, the technological progress relating to material production, construction, testing and manufacturing techniques was significant. I want to highlight three major changes impacting board constructions over time. The first change is material innovation. Leather was commonly used as the main material all the way in the past and up until the 90s. And you can imagine the big benefit of leather is its soft touch and feel. However, it came along with a lot of disadvantages. And I think the biggest one is the water uptake. So as soon as it started raining, the balls became heavier. And that, of course, caused injuries and also caused trouble in holding the ball in shape. Adidas then introduced a PU coating. PU, polyurethane called Duralast, uh, providing waterproofing and protection of the surface. This technique was firstly introduced and applied for the 1974 ball for the World Cup in Germany. The second big change is the evolution of pedal shapes. The Telstar 1970 was the first World Cup ball to use the now familiar 32 pedal design with two black pentagons and 20 white hexagons. The black and white pattern helped visibility on black and white TV sets yeah, at the time. The third big change is the construction method. In the past, all footballs were assembled by hand. Panels were hand-stitched mainly in Pakistan, which is famous for its long tradition in ball manufacturing. Today, match balls 
are manufactured in a semi-automated way, the match ball of the FIFA World Cup 2022 is thermo-bonded. By applying this production method, 20 panels are glued and bonded by heat in a mold. Testing actually need to comply with FIFA's quality pro standards. To prove performance characteristics of the Al-Rahla, we conducted several wind tunnel tests as well as visibility tests. We use a kicking robot and high-skid cameras to measure speed, flight stability and accuracy of the ball. But the most important test and of capital importance, however, is what we call the field test. So here we actually try to see how the football players perceive a new ball. 350 players, both male and female, tested the new ball on amateur and pro levels, including Bayern Munich, Manchester United, Sporting Kansas, the Mexican Football Federation or the German Football Federation. So how do you ensure that the balls that Adidas manufactures comply not just with the FIFA standards, but also the different national standards and regulation in place across all the different markets in which you sell footballs? To be able to sell our products globally, we have to continuously review international and national standards, import or tax requirements, just to name a few. Those relate, for example, to product classification, hazardous chemicals or product and child safety regulations. And yes, in general, we are aiming for the highest compliance standard to facilitate access to most markets. So as you've heard from Oliver, trade in footballs depends on compliance with international standards and a web of other national rules. Trade issues can arise here too. Some are raised by WTO members and brought to the attention of the WTO's Committee on Technical Barriers to Trade. Discussions on labour standards marked the early years after the WTO's establishment. In 1996, WTO members agreed to recognise core labour standards, but also that these should not be used for protectionist purposes. Since then, WTO members have looked to the International Labour Organisation as the competent body for labour standards. In 1997, the Sialkot Chamber of Commerce signed with the International Labour Organization and UNICEF. I asked Kazim Malik to give a bit of background as to why the agreement was signed and what the problem was that it was seeking to address. Again, we apologize for the poor audio quality. It started uh, with an issue called child labor, which was brought by ILO, International Labour Organization, and we signed an agreement the main idea was to create awareness that nobody below the age limit uh, will be allowed to work in the factories. Each and every factory makes sure that we are not going to in any way, in any case, employ uh, child labor. Today, I'm happy to tell you that there is no child labor because every company understands it very carefully that we cannot go like this. Initially, footballs were hand-stitched, but technological innovation has changed the methods used. Is that correct? People always wanting to have the new technology which is improved from previous. So previously, there was this uh, hand-sewed football, which was normally sent to different uh, villages for sewing, you know, in back times, in maybe 40, 50 years ago and people used to take home football for stitching so that they could have some extra money but today the situation is entirely different 
we have entirely moved towards the machinery so we have now those machines which are much more easier much more accurate much more professional we have gone with the time we have moved with the time and it's been progressive i also asked robert de cock about this issue Robert, um, can you explain how the World Federation of Sporting Goods Industries went about eliminating child labour from the football manufacturing supply chain? Quite an activity, because it all started, I would say, in the 90s, where we got the shock of our life, I would nearly say. At that time, uh, the child labour issue was uh, quite a heavy burden uh, to the industry. And it was also a common burden, because it wasn't any more brand A or B, it was football. So once football came into the news with child labor, then every brand was basically concerned. That was then also the start of uh, building the Atlanta Agreement. Those parties involved have been the ILO, FIFA, uh, and amongst others, the WFSGI. Um, with as a result, I would say that, uh, uh, that uh, FIFA basically started to request all licensees, and those were the ones who basically had a FIFA logo placed somewhere on the product and, and were selling footballs to ensure that basically child labor was eliminated in the production of FIFA licensed footballs. Um, and that was basically then also a good start of initiating a variety of activities that would help that. And one of them was that WFSGI started to verify the institutions and factories that were producing uh, those uh, products. Today, obviously, the focus is not anymore on child labor alone, but I mean, we have broadened our focus uh, to, uh, I would say, a wide range of labor issues, and we address them all in our WFSGI code of conduct, which is updated in a regular uh, base also, and which forms then also that base of, of verification. And today, I would say every FIFA licensee has to comply with this code. Uh, it has to be proven by submitting uh, official audit reports. And here we also have strict rules of how these audit reports are presented and by whom they are made. That all came forth out of this whole child labour issue. Among the issues that the supply chain is getting to grips with is sustainable manufacturing, addressing the carbon footprint and the broader environmental impact of football production. As Dr. Newman Bart explained to me, his company is certified to ISO 14000, a globally recognised standard on environmental management, and is integrating recycled materials like PET bottles, rubber and polyester fibre into his manufacturing operations. He's also investing in renewable energy and reducing water consumption. And at the other end of the supply chain, Adidas is taking action too. Sustainability is a key strategic pillar of their business plan looking out to 2025, a date by which Adidas aims to have achieved the target of carbon neutrality in its own operations. Rethinking materials is another area of focus, as Oliver explained. One of the most ambitious strategy is the circular economy. So that entails to take back the product at the end of the life cycle. By 2025, nine out of 10 articles will carry sustainable material content. So for balls, that will further mean 50% of a ball's weight must be built with sustainable content. Let me draw the action in this episode to a close. As you have heard, various WTO agreements play an important role in shaping trade in footballs. 
the most indispensable item in the global value chain of the beautiful game. If you want to follow up on the issues that were raised in this episode, please consult the show notes on the podcast page of the WTO website. Remember to tune in next time to hear about trade and pitches. Yes, you heard correctly. This is the episode in which we're going to make watching the grass grow a trade concern. So see you next time on Let's Talk Trade.